Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So Ezekiel 23 verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They committed harlotry in Egypt. They committed harlotry in their youth. Their breasts were there embraced. Their virgin bosom was pressed. Their names, Ahola the elder, and Aholabah her sister. They were mine, and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Samaria is Ahola, and Jerusalem is Aholabah. So here we have another allegory here in the book of Ezekiel. In the allegory, which is a, it's a story with a meaning behind it, um, there's two women and they're sisters, and they're from the same mother. And the mother is uh, symbolized in this uh, allegory, but it's the nation of Israel. And these two sisters descended from Sarah, Abraham's wife. Ahola is the older sister. Her, she represents Samaria. Samaria was the northern kingdom that had, when Israel split up into two kingdoms, you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And it went by the name of Samaria because Samaria was its capital. It was also was called Israel. Um, and so this is speaking of the northern kingdom. And her name here in this allegory is Ahola. And that name means her own tent or you could translate it her own tabernacle. And the northern kingdom set up their own places of worship in the territory um, as they saw fit. And uh, she's the uh, referred to as the elder sister because she committed apostasy first and was punished first. Then we have Aholabah, who's the younger sister, and this is referring to or symbolized uh, of Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, collectively known as Judah or Jerusalem, Jerusalem being its capital. And her name is my tent, or again, my tabernacle is in her. And God's meeting place, his tent or his tabernacle was the temple in Jerusalem. And that was the only place where God was to be worshipped in those days. Uh, you know, if you think about it, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we could probably go by the name of Aholabah. I don't know if you thought about that, but God's tabernacle is in us as well, right? 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God's temple is dwelling in you and I as believers. And So, verse 5. Ohola played the harlot, even though she was mine. And she lusted for her lovers, the neighboring Assyrians, who were clothed in purple, captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. Thus they committed her harlotry with them, all of them choice men of Assyria, and with all for whom she lusted, with all her, their idols, she defiled herself. She has never given up her harlotry brought from Egypt, for in her youth 
they had lain with her, pressed her virgin bosom, and poured out their immorality upon her. Therefore I have delivered her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians for whom she lusted. They uncovered her nakedness, took away her sons and daughters, and slew her with the sword. She became a byword among women, for they had executed judgment on her. This is a very, very uh, graphic account of harlotry here. And here Ohola, Samaria, or the northern kingdom, played the harlot with both Assyria and Egypt. That started way back in their early history with King Jeroboam. Uh, he was Jeroboam, known in the Bible as the son of Nebat. And he built uh, a golden calf. Actually, he built two golden calves, put one in the territory of Dan, which is in the far northern part of Israel, and at Bethel. And then he told the people that were, you know, under his dominion, he said, is it too much, or excuse me, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your, here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. So he basically set up altars in that land for them to worship rather than having the people go down to the temple in the southern kingdom. The Bible tells us that he also made shrines on the high places and he made priests from every class of people who were not of the tribe of Levi. He just picked anybody off the street and says, hey, you're going to be a priest of this new this altar here that I've set up in the northern kingdom. The Bible also says that he devised in his own heart feast days for the people to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings on the altars that he had built. That was Jeroboam. And from there, it just got progressively worse. The people started worshiping the gods of the Assyrians. They looked to those nations for military protection. And as a consequence of their sins, God caused the Assyrians, the people that she actually trusted in, to destroy her and to lead her in captivity. And that literally took place about a hundred years before the time of, of Ezekiel's ministry here. Verse 11. Now, although her sister Oholibah saw this, she became more corrupt in her lust than she, and in her harlotry more corrupt than her sister's harlotry. She lusted for the neighboring Assyrians, captains and rulers clothed most gorgeously, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men, then I saw that she was defiled. Both took the same way, but she increased her harlotry. She looked at men portrayed on the wall, images of Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion, girded with belts around their waists, flowing turbans on their heads, all of them looking like captains in the manner of the Babylonians of Chaldea, the land of their nativity. As soon as her eyes saw them, she lusted for them, and she sent messengers to them in Chaldea. Then the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their immorality. So she was defiled by them and alienated herself from them. Oholabah, the southern kingdom, saw all that, would hap all that happened to her sister, the northern kingdom, a hundred years earlier, but instead of learning the lesson and avoiding the sin, she did the same. But not only did she do the same, but she actually did worse than the northern kingdom. You know, going in back into their history, Ahaz was one of the kings 
of Judah, um, the southern kingdom. And during his reign, Syria, not, not Assyria, but Syria, and the northern kingdom of Israel joined forces to attack his kingdom, the, the southern tribes there. And so Ahaz, he took silver and gold from the temple treasury and he sent it up to the king of Assyria with a message saying, I am your son, excuse me, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. So he made this military, he made this military plea to the king of Assyria and he took money and, and treasures and stuff from the temple and, and gave it to this, this pagan king. And the king of Assyria did come down and attacked Syria and captured Damascus. And so after that happened, Ahaz took like kind of like a political dignitary trip up to uh, Damascus to meet with the king of Assyria. And while he was in Damascus there, he saw an altar there. And he goes, oh, that's pretty cool. And so he, he kind of took out his papyrus uh, scratch pad or whatever he had. I don't know if they had the post-it notes then but you know he took that whatever it was and he kind of drew out the kind of looked at the measurements and he kind of kind of drew out a replica of that altar and he sent it down to uh the high priest there in jerusalem and he said hey i want you to build a replica of this altar and then i want you to set it up in the temple. I want you to set it up, and that's going to be where you're going to start doing the sacrifices and the offerings. We're going to there's this new thing. We're going to do this, and uh, and the priests did that, and so that the worship of God was defiled by this pagan altar. Um, Ahaz also sacri- uh, he also sacrificed his children to the god Molech. And aside from Ahaz, excuse me, aside from a couple kings after Ahaz, most of the rest of the kings of Judah after him, they basically continued in that same sin and added more to them, including the worship of the Babylonian deities, which is being referred to here. So because she ignored the warning through the example of her older sister in the northern kingdom, Aholabah, the younger sister, is going to suffer the same fate. You know, sometimes we read through the Bible and, you know, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat people's sins. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, every story isn't just like have a happy ending. There's some tragedies that occur in the Bible that we read. To me, that's a confirmation that the Bible is true because, you know, it's not, it doesn't sugarcoat things. It basically says it the way it is. And all of these stories of people and events in the Bible, they've been written for you and I today to serve as a lesson for us. Now, Aholabah saw what happened to Ahola, her older sister, and she didn't listen. And so she suffered the same fate, the same consequences. You and I, we've been given these stories in the Bible. In fact, in Corinthians, Paul, in his first letter, he's writing to the Corinthians, and he's using examples from the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness. And he says this in chapter 10, Verse 11, he says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. You know, it's much easier to learn from someone else's mistakes. Much easier, but unfortunately, a lot of times we learn from our own mistakes, right? We just we don't, we don't observe what happened to them, and we kind of do the same thing, and then we suffer the consequences. It would be much easier and much nicer and much... It'd just be better all around if we would go, you know, I'm not going to do what that person does. 
I don't want to follow in, into that sin. But Aholabah didn't do that, and she actually did worse. Verse 18, she revealed her harlotry and uncovered her nakedness. Then I alienated myself from her as I had alienated myself from her sister. Yet she multiplied her harlotry in calling to remembrance the days of her youth when she played the harlot in the land of Egypt. For she lusted for her paramours, whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys and whose issue is like the issue of horses. Thus you call to remembrance the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians pressed your bosom because of your youthful breasts. You know, one of the songs that we sing here, a worship song, it's based out of Psalm 25, verse 6 and 7. It's a psalm of David, and he's crying out to the Lord. And we actually have a worship song that was written based on that psalm. It says, Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. You know, I can think back to some of the stuff that I did in my youth, and I, and I would echo that. Lord, don't, don't remember the sins of my youth, the things that I did in my foolishness. And praise God, when you and I turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, when we repent of our sins, we can claim this promise, Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's a blessing that you and I have as believers, man. That, that's just, it's gone. He doesn't remember the sins of my youth, of our youth. But here, the southern kingdom not only remembered the sins of her youth in Egypt, but she repeated them. Verse 22, Therefore, O Holabah, says the Lord God, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stir up your lovers against you from whom you have alienated yourself, and I will bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians, all the Chaldeans, Pekod, Shoah, Koah, all the Assyrians with them, all of them desirable young men, governors and rulers, captains and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. Now, this Pekod, Shoah, and Koah, I have no idea. (laughs) It, you know, I'm like, who are these people or what are they? I went in, I started looking at commentaries and they, like every commentary I picked up or everything I picked up to look at had a different opinion. So I'm like, ah, who knows? Obviously they don't know because everyone's got a different opinion, but they could either be names of people or names of groups of people. Uh, they could be geographical regions within Babylon, uh, Babylon or symbolic names. Um, who knows? I don't know. Um, but basically... All the different nations that are mentioned here that were these sisters' lovers, they're now going to be their attackers. Verse 24, And they shall come against you with chariots, wagons, and war horses, with a horde of people. They shall array against you buckler, shield, and helmet all around. I will delegate judgment to them, and they shall judge you according to their judgments. I will set my jealousy against you, and they shall deal furiously with you. They shall remove your nose and your ears, and your remnant shall fall by the sword. They shall take your sons and your daughters, and your remnant shall be devoured by fire. Now, apparently, in ancient Egypt and in ancient Babylon, adulteresses were punished by having their noses and their ears literally cut off to disfigure them. And so in this allegory, Judah is going to be disfigured 
by her enemies. Verse 26. They shall also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewelry. Thus I will make you cease your lewdness and your harlotry brought from the land of Egypt, so that you will not lift up your eyes to them, nor remember Egypt any more. For thus says the Lord God, Surely I will deliver you into the hand of those who hate uh, into the hand of those you hate, into the hand of those from whom you alienated yourself. They will deal hatefully with you, take away all you have worked for, and leave you naked and bare. The nakedness of your harlotry shall be uncovered, both your lewdness and your harlotry. I will do these things to you because you have gone as a harlot after the Gentiles, because you have become defiled by their idols. You have walked in the way of your sister, Therefore, I will put her cup in your hand. Thus says the Lord God, You shall drink of your sister's cup, the deep and wide one. You shall be laughed to scorn and held in derision. It contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink and drain it. You shall break its shards and tear at your own breast, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. So the southern kingdom, Judah, is going to drink the cup of horror and desolation, which was the cup of the northern kingdom when they went into captivity. You know, it'd be an interesting study to do is to go through and look at all the times in the Bible that are mentions the cup of something. Uh, that we have among them the cup of God's wrath. There's a cup of drunkenness. There's a cup of God's fury, a cup of consolation, a cup of salvation. What in the Bible refers to all these different things, what does a cup of something mean? It means a portion. It's someone's portion that they're going to have to partake of. And because of Judah's sins, because of the Aholabah's sins, their portion would be the cup of horror and desolation that their sister Aholabah, or Ahola had partaken of. In other words, they're going to partake of the same horror and desolation, the same consequences of their sin that their older sister did. They're not going to escape it. And the Bible here says that that cup is deep and wide, and they're going to be forced to drink it down to the very dregs. Have you ever had somebody give you something to drink, and it's like, you know, cough syrup. That's one thing. I cannot stand cough syrup. But, you know, you got to do it sometimes, and it's like, uh, you know, and it's like, no, drink it all down. He's like, oh, you know, I'm almost gagging over it. That's the kind of the picture that's going to be. You're going to drink this cup of, of, of horror and death all the way down to the very end. You're, you're going to, I'm not holding back anything, God's saying. You're going to suffer completely for your sin. You know, Jesus Christ drank our cup of suffering down to the very dregs when he died on the cross for us. The suffering that should have been ours, that was our portion, Jesus Christ took that cup and he drank it. And he didn't just sip from it. He drank it down. He took all of the suffering that was meant for us. He took it upon himself. And because of his sacrifice, you and I have the blessing of being able to drink from the cup of salvation. And we're invited also to drink of the cup of blessing. Each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we commemorate what Christ did on the cross for us. 
We've been given the cup, those cups of blessing, the cup of salvation, while Christ, our Savior, took the cup of our suffering. Verse 35. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, therefore you shall bear the penalty of your lewdness and your harlotry. Now he's really just kind of nailing the, the root of the sin, and that is forgetting God and turning their back on Him. And that's what happens with you and I when we fall into sin and we continue in sin. We're basically forgetting God and we're turning our back against Him. Verse 36. The Lord also said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ohola and Oholabah? Then declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. They have committed adultery with their idols and even sacrificed their sons whom they bore to me, passing them through the fire to devour them. Moreover, they have done this to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbaths. For after they had slain their children for their idols on the same day, they came into my sanctuary to profane it. And indeed, thus they have done in the midst of my house." Whenever you read through the Bible about people passing children through the fire, it's talking about literal human sacrifice. And to the god Molech and to god Baal and different different pagan gods, people would offer their children, it might be their firstborn child or whatever, they'd offer their new newborn infants or their young children, they'd burn them alive in a fire to these pagan gods. And God's looking at them, and they're doing that in the southern kingdom of Judah. And and they were doing that in the Valley of Gehenna. There it was right off of not too far from the temple. They'd go and they'd, they'd offer their children as a, as a living human sacrifice to these false gods. And that very same day, they'd go up to the temple and start worshiping God in the temple. God says, man, you guys are filthy. This isn't right. They were shameless in their hypocrisy. Verse 40. Furthermore, you sent for men to come from afar, to whom a messenger was sent, and there they came. And you washed yourself for them, painted your eyes, and adorned yourself with ornaments. You sat on a stately couch with a table prepared before it, on which you had set my incense and my oil. The sound of a carefree multitude was with her, and Sabians were brought from the wilderness with men of the common sort, who put bracelets on their wrists and beautiful crowns on their heads. Then I said concerning her who had grown old in adulteries, Will they commit harlotry with her now, and she with them? Yet they went into her as men go into a woman who plays the harlot. Thus they went into Ohola and Oholaba, the lewd women. But righteous men will judge them after the manner of adulteresses and after the manner of women who shed blood, because they are adulteresses, and blood is on their hands. For thus says the Lord God, Bring up an assembly against them, and give them up to trouble and plunder. The assembly shall stone them with stones, and execute them with their swords. They shall slay their sons and their daughters, and burn their houses with fire. When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, 
they had soldiers who were known as slingers of stones. They basically were hurling stones into the city. And they also had war machines, kind of like catapults, that they would hurl large stones into the city. And when they went to destroy the city, that's what the, that was one of, the, one of the methods that they did that. And it's interesting because under Levitical law, the punishment for adultery was death by stoning. And so in God's punishment of Jerusalem, their adultery, it's spiritual adultery. You know, when you and I, when we start worshiping other things other than God, we're committing spiritual adultery. God looks at you and I, we're the bride of Christ. And when we commit sin, we're, we're, it's like we're being unfaithful to our husband. And throughout the Bible, God looks at spiritual adultery or, you know, uh, people that start worshiping idols as adultery. He, com- he makes the, the connection there, uh, uses that example. And so in God's punishment of Jerusalem, it's interesting. They've committed spiritual adultery, and they're literally going to get stoned to death by the Babylonians. Verse 48, Thus I will cause lewdness to cease from the land, that all women may be taught not to practice your lewdness, they shall repay you for your lewdness, and you shall pay for your idolatrous sins. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. You know, and I'm looking at this verse, and apparently it appears that sexual immorality was rampant at this time throughout Jerusalem. Now we get to chapter 24, verse 1. Again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, write down the name of the day. This very day, the king of Babylon started his siege against Jerusalem this very day. This was the ninth year of King Jehoiakim's reign. And this date that God tells Ezekiel to write down, that is the date that Nebuchadnezzar began his final siege of Jerusalem. And according to the experts, it was January 15th, 588 B.C. It's uh, recorded in 2 Kings 25.1 and Jeremiah 39.1 and Jeremiah 52.4. Now, that's the date that, that Nebuchadnezzar went to start destroying Jerusalem, uh, the final siege on Jerusalem. But the city was not immediately conquered, and it wasn't destroyed until about 5, well, actually 586 B.C. So, I don't know, something like 18 months or something is what that siege, to, that final siege took place. But here God is prophesying for, from, for Ezekiel the exact day when Nebuchadnezzar is going to start this siege, this final siege of Jerusalem, where Jerusalem will be destroyed. You know, when I look at things like this, and you know, when you read the Bible and you read about stuff like this, prophecies, you know, one of the things, God prophesied the exact day. Man, first of all, it tells me God's word is true. It also tells me that Ezekiel, the prophet, was a true prophet of God because the things that God told him to prophesy, they literally happened as, as Ezekiel prophesied. And it also tells me that God is sovereign and that God has, you know, history and control. And, and he, he proclaims this is the day that this is going to take place. You know, I look at prophecy today and I wonder... What's the next date that God has set aside on our prophetic horizon? And myself personally, I believe that the next prophetic event is the rapture of the church. And no man knows the day or the hour, 
but God does. And God has appointed a day that's going to be the last day of the church age. When the last person prays to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and, and, that's, and he knows who that is, and he knows when that is, and when that day comes, that'll be it, and we'll be entering into a new age. You know, God has appointed a day for each of us, too. It's a day of our death. We have no control over it. We don't know when it's going to happen. But the writer of Psalms 90, verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You know, we don't know if we have tomorrow. None of us know if we even have this afternoon. All that we know is we have right now, right? We have today. We know that we have today. And Psalm 75 and Hebrews 4, 7 both state, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. You, 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 can, you can do things today because you don't know what you have tomorrow. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of, you, any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So we don't know about tomorrow, but we know we have right now. And so right now is when God wants us to respond to Him. Verse 3, And utter a parable to the rebellious house, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Put on a pot, set it on, and also pour water into it. Gather pieces of meat in it, every good piece, the thigh and the shoulder. Fill it with choice cuts. Take the choice of the flock. Also pile fuel bones under it. Make it to boil well and let the cuts simmer in it. Sounds like a recipe, right? Um, so now Ezekiel's to take this pot and he's to add water and these choice cuts of meat uh, to start and start to cook it basically in the fire. And it's a symbol of what's going to happen to Jerusalem. As this pot starts boiling on the fire, and as that meat starts cooking in the flames there in the fire, uh, basically it's symbolizing that God's anger has reached a boiling point with His people, and His people are now really in hot water, literally. Jerusalem was about to be consumed with the fire of God's wrath. Verse 6, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose scum is in it, and whose scum is not gone from it. Bring it out piece by piece, on which no lot has fallen. For her blood is in her midst. She set it on top of a rock. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust, that it may raise up fury and take vengeance. I have set her blood on top of a rock, that it may not be covered. Now, there is a law in Leviticus 17. It's kind of obscure, but basically it's regarding blood that was spilled on the ground. And it was to be covered with dust. If, if you spilled an animal's blood or human, human blood, whatever, you were to cover it over with dust from the ground in order to hide it and not to defile the land. If the blood just laid out on the open, you were defiling the land, basically. And God is saying, you are no longer going to be able to hide and cover over your sin. You've defiled the land, and I'm just going to leave it bare and exposed for all to see. Verse 9, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! I too will make the pyre great. Heap on the wood, kindle the fire, cook the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the cuts be burned up. 
Then set the pot empty on the coals, that it may become hot, and its bronze may burn, that its filthiness may be melted in it, that its scum may be consumed. So not only would the contents of the pot be consumed in the fire, but Ezekiel's instructed, hey, just leave that pot in the fire, and uh, maybe that scum that's inside of it's going to burn off. You know, we do that with our pans sometimes. We use... have. A lot of cast iron in our cooking, cast iron pots, mm-hmm. and a lot of times we'll put, we'll leave the pot on the on the on the burner with a little bit of water in it and let it kind of boil up so that it kind of boils off the scum mm-hmm. on the on the pan. If you're not careful, which I've learned, you can cook off the seasoning, which you don't want to do that. But anyways, um, but that's the idea here. You know, leave it in the fire. Maybe maybe the scum will burn off of it. And basically what God is signifying is that not only are the inhabitants of Jerusalem going to be judged by God's fire of his wrath, but the city itself is going to be judged by fire and is going to be burned up and destroyed. Verse 12, she has grown weary with lies and her great scum has not gone from her. Let her scum be in the fire. In your filthiness is lewdness because I have cleansed you and you were not cleansed. You will not be cleansed of your filthiness anymore till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I relent. According to your ways and according to your deeds, they will judge you, says the Lord God. So even though this pot is left in the fire, the scum still clings to the pot. It, it, it's just it's it's like it's useless. It's not going to get cleaned. And God has repeatedly tried to get Judah to repent of their sins and to turn back to Him, and they've continually refused. And now God is basically saying, "You are beyond hope. I've tried to cleanse you. I've I've sent prophet after prophet. I've I've done this and I've done that. I've I've you know I've 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 done all that I can do, and you still have not turned your heart to me. You're without hope. That's a very sad place to be. The fire now of God's wrath is a done deal. He says, this is the date. It's going to happen. Jerusalem's day has come, and God has now declared the day of His wrath. There's no turning back, and there's no relenting and you know, you kind of wonder as Ezekiel's given these prophecies to the people there, it doesn't say in the scriptures, but I kind of wonder if the people, you know, Ezekiel's been doing some strange things and he's been saying a lot of stuff. And it's like the people are going, oh, okay, another, another gloom and doom message, another fire and brimstone thing, you know, it's like, okay, whatever. And it almost seems like they're bored with him. And the reason why I say that, you know, they have been curious about his prophecies, but obviously they haven't responded to it. And the prophecies have gone in one ear and out the other ear. And so now God is going to give a very vivid picture of the coming judgment. Verse 15. Also the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat men's bread of sorrow. So I spoke to the people in the morning. And at evening my wife died. 
And the next morning, I did as I was commanded. I get choked up when I read that. It's like, wow. You know, Ezekiel's had to do some very uncomfortable and difficult things in his ministry. But I imagine this probably shook him to his core. Can you imagine that? God's saying, okay, I'm going to take your wife. I'm going to take your husband. And you're not to mourn over him. I can imagine this would have been the most difficult thing that Ezekiel's had to face. He's had to put his emotions aside, and he did. He did as he was commanded. He didn't shrink back from serving the Lord. He obeyed the Lord, and all he could do was sigh in silence. All these things that God said, don't do all these things. You know, don't eat the bread of, of sorrow. Don't put the turban, you know, do all these things. Those were all cultural ways that people mourned for the dead in those days. And so God says, I don't want you to do that. Verse 19, And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things signify to us, that you behave so? I mean, they knew that Ezekiel loved his wife. The elders would come to Ezekiel's house and hang out for hours waiting for him to receive a word from the Lord. And, you know, his wife's probably giving them food to eat and, you know, doing all the stuff in the house. And they're, they know that he loves his wife. And she dies. And he's not mourning. And they're like, what is going on with this? Then I answered them, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, your arrogant boast, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul, and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword, and you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat man's bread of sorrow. Your turbans shall be on your heads, and your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities and mourn with one another. Thus Ezekiel is assigned to you, according to all that he has done you shall do, and when this comes you shall know that I am the Lord God. God's sanctuary, the temple, their arrogant boast. You know, they, they basically continued in sin and they said, well, but we're God's chosen people. We've got the temple. You know, we're, we're, it's almost like people say, well, we're American. You know, God's going to bless our nation. You know, nothing's ever going to happen to us, good old USA, while we continue in idolatry, while we continue in sin. God says, I'm going to take away that boasting, that temple. It's going to be destroyed. Your children are going to be killed by the Babylonians. And yet because of this overwhelming calamity, you're not even going to be able to grieve. It's going to be so horrendous, you can't, tears won't even flow. And so Ezekiel would be assigned to them as God did to him, so he would do to them. I like what Matthew Henry says. If a faithful servant of God was thus afflicted only for his trial... Shall a generation of rebels uh, against God go unpunished? God used him. He went through the most horrendous thing. And, and you might say, well, that's really hard on God. But well, think what he's going to do to those who have turned his, their backs on him. If he does that to one of his servants, what's he going to do to those who have completely blown God off and forgot about him and neglected him? Verse 25, And you, son of man, Will it not be in the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy, and their glory, the desire of their eyes, that on which they set their minds, their sons and their daughters? On that day, one who escapes will come to you and let you hear it with your ears. On that day, your mouth will be opened to him who has escaped. You shall speak and no longer be mute. 
Thus you shall be assigned to them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So after giving this prophecy here, Ezekiel is now commanded to remain mute until these things take place. And when someone comes back and says, hey, Ezekiel, happened just like you said, then he's going to be allowed to speak again. Ezekiel suffered the most difficult of afflictions in his ministry. I think this was the worst, but it didn't sideline him. He didn't quit. He remained faithful. And it's interesting to me because some churches teach this. The devil didn't take away Ezekiel's wife from him. God did it. Wow. God took him away, took her away. God took what was precious away from Ezekiel and used that to speak to a lost and dying people. And I have to ask myself and I have to ask each one of us, what would you do if God took away something from you? You know, this, you know, and I don't mean to knock other churches, but this really flies in the face of people that teach prosperity. God just wants you happy. He just wants to bless you. You know, he wants, you know, you, you, you demand healing. You demand this. And you you come across this in Ezekiel where God says, I'm taken away from you. And it's a lesson. What if God chose not to heal you? What if, what if he said, you know, you, you've got some terrible disease or whatever, or some condition, and you've been praying and praying and praying for God's healing. He says, I'm, I'm not going to do it. And he doesn't heal you. Is that going to wipe out your faith in him? Does that mean, well, God's, you know, God's not a good God? What if instead he wants to show you how a true believer in God suffers and maybe even dies, remaining, un, remaining faithful to him? What if, what if God would take your life and say, you know, I'm going to pour you out. I'm going to use your life to the death, but it's going to be for my kingdom. And it's going to be a lesson to people around you. What if God did that to you this morning or in your life? Would it sideline you? What if God wanted to show how a true believer can lose everything financially and still remain faithful? You know, I, I come across scriptures like this and I go, I, you know, yeah, God wants to bless us, but that blessing may not be right here and now in the sense that I think God blesses me. It may have an eternal, it's probably an eternal blessing here. And what if God wants to use your or my life and instead of giving us things, take away things, can we still bless him? I think of that one verse in Job that says, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. And I wonder, man, can I say that? You know, I struggle through this passage. And I'm sure you guys are like, oh, man, I don't know. But this is something that you and I really need to consider. God wants to use our lives. And this is the last days. And God may take away things from us. And, and he may not an- choose to answer a prayer that we've been praying for him to deliver us from whatever. And he may want us to be a lesson to somebody. And somebody's watching your life and they say, wow, look, he's going through the, or she's going through the most terrible thing. And yet she still has joy in her heart. And she's still praising the Lord. How can that be? What's, what's the secret? And you get to share with them, man, my hope's in Jesus Christ. So I think that's the lesson here today for us. And, and I think it's something I would just encourage you to prayerfully consider this. God, what if you were to take away from me? 
will I still praise you? Will I still love you? Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer.